morning. Uh, it's really great to see you guys today. I'm glad you're here. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 14. And if you're a guest with us, you caught us um, in the middle of walking through the book of Acts. Um, and today, we pick it up in the middle of the first Christian missionary efforts by Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. This is the first time Jews have gone to non-Jews to preach the message of Jesus in the kingdom of God. Uh, it was relatively unheard of and not done. Uh, the Jews would go to Gentiles to preach. And so we're in the middle of their first journey. Chapter 13 describes their efforts in Cyprus and Antioch um, of Pisidian. And it says in 13, so the last, I'm just giving you a quick little recap of where we're at. The last chapter, what happened is it says, when the Jews saw the crowds gathered around Paul and Barnabas, so they're speaking, miracles are happening, crowds gather. It says they were filled with jealousy. And they stirred up the leaders of the area to kick out Paul and Barnabas. So first missionary journey, first town they go to, and they're kicked out. Not going so great. Uh, they had people that believed. Yeah, they did. They had a large group that believed. But then they had this small group that was filled with jealousy and hatred uh, and drove them out of town. And it says that Paul and Barnabas leave full of joy in the Holy Spirit. That was the last chapter. So now we pick it up in 14th um, on the heels of being kicked out of the last town they were in. And we're going to see, you will see, if you look at the book of Acts um, in earnest, a similar pattern that will repeat itself over and over and over again for the rest of the book. From, from the rest, for the rest of the sermons, you're basically going to say you're preaching the same thing because the same thing happens over and over again, which is the gospel being preached, often accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. Some people hear it and they enter into new life. <laughs> Some people hear it and it's like a river gushing through a desert dry land and where dead things were, things start to grow. Salvation springs up from the ground from hearing this message. And other people hear it and because they perceive that, because they perceive that life as a threat for one reason or another, take great pains not just to ignore the message themselves, but to silence the preachers of that message. You will see some iteration of that story over and over and over again. Every time the gospel is proclaimed in the book of Acts, it becomes predictable. So let's pick it up, Acts 14. We're gonna read the whole chapter. I'm gonna read a bit, stop, chat, read a bit, stop, chat. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Who bore witness to the word of his grace? The Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, 
some with the apostles. When an attempt was made, both by Gentiles and Jews, with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, Derbe, cities of Lysonia, and to the surrounding country where they continued preach, to preach the gospel. So it says they stayed in Iconium a long time, maybe months, we don't know, we're not given the exact time they stayed, but the whole time they're here, uh, not only is a group poisoning minds against them. I mean, if you think you have an, <laughs> you know, uh, an, a relationship that you feel is against you, you know, poisoning minds against you. So not only is that happening, despite that, they stay a long time, which says something about them. But we also see that something is happening with the apostles. They are, their preaching is captivating so much so that a great number, that's what it says, of people are believing. So salvation is happening. A revival of sorts is breaking out. And it states that the way in which they were talking had something to do with it. It expounds more, actually. It says that it was the boldness of their speech. No doubt, a reminiscence of the very speech of Jesus, which was said to have been done with authority, not like their own teacher's. So they speak in this kind of confidence and boldness. And as they speak, it says, God says amen to what they are saying. I know, I love a little participation in a sermon. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> amen, right? I love it, right? God himself is saying amen to the word of his grace being preached. And how does he do that? By by granting through their hands signs and wonders. So we need to listen to what is being said. Okay, let's stop and let's look at the scripture itself and wrestle with what is going on. The signs and wonders are not an end in and of themselves. We chatting? This is an important distinction. The signs and wonders are not an end of themselves. They were done for one thing, to say amen to the word of grace. Signs and wonders, I'm sorry, I've got something in my throat. Let me just. <clears throat> signs and wonders are simply what they are called, signs. A sign points to something, doesn't it? like a stop sign or a go sign or a yield sign or a sign that says, pretty good church, this way. <clears throat> the sign is not the point, though it may be funny. The point is what it's pointing to. The miracles of God, the signs of God are not parlor tricks that the ultra-spiritual elite do to gather people to their cause. Nonsense. The miraculous of God, the signs of God, healings, people who were deaf, who regained their uh, hearing, people that were blind, that regained their sight, all of these things that we're about to see are pointing to something else, primarily to gain a crowd from which Paul could then give them what? The word of God's grace. All of the signs were pointing to the message that was being preached. They were 
the signs and wonders were to gather the authentic attention of the crowd so that they could hear the message. So what's happening is electric, y'all. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, putting wakes in the community. People are coming from miles and miles and cities away because these guys are healing people, right? And we're gonna see that in this text specifically. But the primary thing, and Jesus had to deal with this too. If, you're, if you grew up in church and remember Jesus dealing with people following him because he was performing signs and wonders, the primary thing is the preaching. It's the content that is so captivating. Why? Why is the content so captivating? We've heard the gospel a bajillion times, haven't we? Probably, maybe you grew up in church and your brain is half off now because you've heard it all before, right? For them... Something was extremely provoking about the God that he was describing. And to understand the contrast, we have to get in the first century mindset, y'all. The first century Greeks and Romans, their universe was ruled by vain, petulant, punitive gods. Like Zeus, you ever read any of that Greek mythology stuff? It's dirty. It's some dirty stuff, right? What they basically did was took a depraved human and blew him up to God size and they still act like a depraved human and they worshiped him. That's the Greek gods, short, short of it, right? They're committing uh, adultery and incest and all sorts of horrible things, the Greek gods. The Greek Roman world was ruled by unpredictable, punitive, vain gods. Maybe you were on their good side or maybe you weren't. If you had enough money, maybe you could sacrifice enough to the gods and they would bless your crops, but maybe they wouldn't. Who knows? It was very unpredictable and and it was the universe that they projected to the divine was flawed by the depravity of sin just like they were, right? Their gods were just as depraved and gross as they were. So here these guys are preaching that there's only one God who created everything, and that he is good and loving. Now that feels like passe Christianity to us, but to them, that was remarkable. A God that is good and loving, who created things for our joy? This is one of the reasons why the preaching was so captivating for their minds, right? And he's inviting you into a new way of life, new way of living. Put your evil ways behind you. His name's Jesus. He was killed for our sins and came back to life. Therefore, it wasn't just the miracles or the community that stood in stark contrast with the culture around him, but that was the very idea of who God was, who God was, what he was like, okay? That was so startling and captivating. And that these miracles that they were seeing were a reflection of the living God and his heart towards humanity. So if you're wondering what the true creator God is like, well, here's a lame man and he's healed, not by anything we've done, but by the power of God. That's what God is like. That's what God does. He heals. He redeems. Okay. So being run out of Iconium under threat of being stoned to death, I don't know if you caught that. They gathered people together. They were going to stone them. Paul and Barnabas caught wind of it, said, let's get out of Dodge. So let's see how it goes in the next town. Just guess what's going to happen. Eight, now at Lystra, there is a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Verse nine, he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking at 
intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in their native tongue, Lysonian, and said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, down the street, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. So literally, a parade starts from the heathen pagan temple with an ox and a garland around it down to Paul and Barnabas to sacrifice to these guys, right? But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the, here it is, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with with food and gladness. That's the kind of God he is. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices. So I just see this priest like with a knife to the oxen's throat and he's like, what? what? But you heal them, you know? And, and they tear their garments. So, so we, don't, we don't do that anymore. Although when my three-year-old spills his drink for the third time in one plate, I want to get that boy a sippy cup, right? Just... Sometimes, it's okay, it's all right. Just go Wolverine on my family. Yeah, someone can say, you know what I'm talking about. I'm a sippy cup. We don't, we don't do that. Instead, uh, we just get passive aggressive or whatever, right? Um, but the, 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 the rending of the garments was a sign of public anger or grief or shamefulness, right? We see this at the mock trial of Jesus when the high priest rips his garment when Jesus says, yeah, I'm the son of God and I'll come in the clouds. The high priest rips his garment. It's a sign of public shamefulness, right? So the boys are beside themselves. This is shameful. This is not our message, not our cause. In fact, we're telling you that Zeus and Hermes are no God at all vain things. And we're here. And so talk about a miracle gone bad, right? I mean, you're thinking you're doing the right thing and just goes south real quick. And they describe God as bearing witness to himself through what? Creation. He's the God that made this. You know that. You know the rains. You know the harvest. Well, where does it all come from? Well, the God of goodness. He, he gives that to you. And for what? Right? He says, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What is your perception of God? Are you here to get him off your back? Like, are you at church to just convince him that you're not that bad? Don't drop the hammer on me. And here's describing this God, this creator being who gives to fill you with good and gladness of heart. Love that. True God is a 
is the God who fills your heart with goodness and gladness. So the boys are exasperated, insisting, we've not done this, don't worship us. This is the kingdom of God, worship the king. And it says, despite their protest, they could barely convince them not to sacrifice to them. So at this point, we need to feel how frustrating and disappointing uh, this could have potentially been for Paul and Barnabas, right? Miracle going wrong. Not only um, are they not turning to the true God, but they think we're incarnations of these false gods we're trying to turn them to. So listen, this is a little side point right here. The supernatural um, amongst Christians will always be confounding to the world, And in worldly thinking, we will regularly worship the man of God instead of God himself. And that's very much what we see happening here. I don't know if you catch this at all, if you've been here a long time. We work pretty hard (laughs) against pedestals. Um, They really don't do us many favors. Uh, When we put men who stand behind pulpits like this and preach sermons like this on pedestals, we put walls in between community and relationships. And it becomes a facade of religion, doesn't it, often? Not only that, it becomes a mediator of religions. They are up there, up high, very different than me. I can't relate to them. They can do that thing. They pray for me. They live their life for me. I'll tithe, and you get this, and we get this horrible separation in Christianity in America because we tend to worship the man of God instead of God himself. It was in the Old Testament that the Jews said to Moses, you go to God for us. And we still do that today. I imagine here, Paul trying to convince them, y'all stop, not a God, put away the knife. And then as in the heat of surely exasperation and trying to convince them and put the knife away, dummy, you know, he looks over the crowds And the brute squad from the last town is walking down the hill. And they have stones in their hands. Like, talk about frustrated. Nothing has gone right on this trip. I mean, nothing, man. They get kicked out of town, kicked out of town. Now they think they're God. And then here comes the, the, the dudes from the last town tracking them down with rocks. And this is crazy. And so these, the, I'm just gonna call them the brute squad from here on out, okay? So the brute squad inserts themselves into the chaos, right? So imagine the chaos. Let's get there, right? Dust flying around. Got this pagan parade happening, big crowds. Paul trying to scream over the crowds. Not God, God's the true creator, right? And here these dudes come, insert themselves into the chaos and on a dime, Change the minds of the crowd. It's insane. Okay, let's get to it. 19. Wait for this. This is crazy. You ever read the Bible? Do you ever ever read this book? This is crazy. All right, 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Thank you, okay? And entered the same city. I lost my place. Where am I? 20 what? 20. Oh, it's the first, it's the first. Okay, here we go. Um, and went on, and went to the same city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, 
when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. He went back to all the cities he was kicked out of. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, sets the church up with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, that's where Antioch was, and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word to Persia, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, Antioch, the, the other Antioch, their hometown. Well, they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that had been fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Interesting phrasing. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So there's so much to be said about this particular passage. The, the fickleness of the mobs, right? Um, the impulse of the Jews to follow Paul from town to town, right? Like, where does that come from? I mean, bro's just preaching. I'm right? just talking about religious stuff. Let him be. And yet, they track him down. Like, where does that come from, All right? But I want us to feel this event from Paul's perspective, and that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together. They threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. Like, what was Paul thinking in that moment? Surely, what, what could have been going through his head, maybe, was, this is it. <laughs> I'm going to die. It's over. I approved the stoning of Stephen. And now I'm going the same way. The mob believed they had killed the man and dragged his limp body and dumped him out of the city. And look at me, look at me. He gets up. He dusts the blood and the dust off of himself. And he walks back in the city to preach the same message. This is difficult for us, and we're going to sit with this. He probably limped back in, right? And it says he makes many disciples. Then he goes back through every city that he had been kicked out of. Every, the city that the brute squad was from, all right? To do what? To do what? To strengthen the souls, to encourage them in their faith, and to say it's through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Not to whine, <laughs> Not to hold the brute squad responsible, which is what I'd be doing. Those are the guys, right? Not to play the victim card. Nah, he goes back to the source of his opposition, to the very people that were persecuting him and those around to strengthen the souls of the saints. Does anyone feel like you're missing something? Every natural instinct in us points at self-preservation at all costs, does it not? So much of our efforts in life and of our culture is aimed at one goal, to preserve my life, to extend my life, to create a pain-free life. I'm thankful for modern-day medicine. Yes and amen. amen. But isn't it the undercurrent of our culture to create an existence in which we feel no pain, an existence in which we live very, very long, and maybe even convince us often that maybe we'll even never die. Isn't death feel like that often to us in our culture? That it's the thing we don't speak of? And all of us just avoid the looming shadow of death that will find every 
single one of us one day. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> we avoid it, don't we? We do. That's why you're uncomfortable when I talk about it. Think of how much you fear real pain. Real pain. <laughs> Think of how much you fear real pain. Think of the industries built on the promise of creating for you a pain-free life, a suffering-free life, right? Whole undercurrent of our culture, pain-free, suffering-free, instant gratification, right? Don't make me wait. Don't make me suffer waiting. Huh? Don't make me inconvenience me, anticipate my needs, right? It's the undercurrent of our culture. And above all, don't cause any discomfort or suffering in my life because we have been trained if something causes discomfort, it is broken. Isn't that true? If something makes us wait longer than we think we should be waiting, it is broken and someone needs to fix it, right? This drive-through line is handled by idiots. If I was in charge, right? We think if we have to wait, if it causes discomfort, if it is inconvenient, it is broken. What do we make of Christianity then when it causes discomfort? What do we make of Christianity then when our faithfulness to God causes discomfort? I'll tell you what many people make of it. It's broken. And they change the gospel. They ignore scriptures like this. And they say, God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Because surely anything that causes discomfort or inconvenience, I will not tolerate, right? Oftentimes, y'all, we will take Christianity and try to back that up and say, God doesn't want you to suffer God doesn't want things to be difficult. God won't make you go through hard things. Look at me. Where does it say that? Where does it say that in scripture? Look at me right here. Pull out your little iPhone, Google search in the Bible websites, suffer in the New Testament and show me where it says that Christians will not suffer. Show me. I dare you. You won't find it. You know what you'll find? The exact opposite. Do it. Go home, pull up your laptop, pull up a Bible app, search suffer in the New Testament. See what it says. When Paul became a Christian, God told him that he was chosen to preach the gospel and that he would show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Surely, as the rocks were knocking him unconscious, that was going through his head. And thus he was not shocked. It is us who shocked when Christianity causes discomfort or any real rub in our life, right? When things get hard, so often aren't we tempted to turn away? I can't tell you how many of my friends have turned away from the faith. And when I ask them what Jesus did, they say, well, there's nothing to do with Jesus. It's because I was disappointed with church community. It's because I got in a fight at small group with an idiot. And I decided that Jesus must be a joke, I guess, because this guy that says he follows him is a joke. So often, y'all, 
when we hit difficulty or adversity or it doesn't meet the expectations that we think it should, isn't that the way so often people walk away from the faith as a whole? And it has so very little to do with Jesus himself, what he said, or the theology of Christianity. And everything to do with their experience of someone else who claims that they're a Christian. There's a whole lot of history and a whole lot of Bible that's going to show us that suffering has been and will be a part of what it means to be a Christian. Here we see Paul is undaunted by the suffering that he is incurring, gets up, walks back into the city. He keeps on keeping on. The bro just endures, right? He has a fighting spirit that doesn't back down. So take, just for a second, and then we're going to get out of here. Take kind of the brain-dead church ears off, and let's think about this for a second, all right? How would you respond to a near-death experience by the hands of an angry mob? I honestly, I I can't ever recall seeing an angry mob. I I guess I stay home a lot. (laughs) Unless on TV, right? Maybe you saw some angry mobs on TV recently, right? Can you imagine being the victim of a horde of enraged people throwing rocks at you until they think you're... Can you imagine this? I can't get my brain around it. Most of us can't relate to anything close to this a crime of this magnitude, how horrifying would a mob of people turning on you to kill you, how would that be, right? So, so, I mean, let's just say, we go to the mall. Remember when you were in high school in youth group and they took you to the mall to evangelize? That ever happened to anyone, anyone else the victim of that? <laughs> Imagine an angry mob forming and beating you unconscious and dragging you to the parking lot and you wake up to your friends around you thinking you were dead. I'll tell you what I would do. I'm done. This is dumb. This is stupid. This this is a broken system, y'all. Did you see what they did to me? Look at me. I'm bleeding. I'm black and bruised. What are we doing? That's what I, I mean, just me. That's what I'd do. Maybe you'd get back and walk back in the mall and preach the gospel. I wouldn't. I'd say something's wrong with this system. Isn't, it, isn't that how we think? This is broken. This is no way this is supposed to be the, the playbook, right? And yet he gets up and walks back. I mean, talk about PTSD. Every time you get around a, a mob that seems to be kind of organizing a little bit, you'd be freaking out, right? Every time you see a rock on the ground, Right? Like, there should be some serious mental trauma there to work through hours, years of counseling. It's preaching. They tried to kill me. I can't imagine all you lovely people picking your chairs up and hurling them at me right now. I just, I, I can't get there. And if you did, I'd be like, well, I'm done. I'm done. I guess, I guess I'm not, a, I shouldn't do that anymore because it didn't, they didn't like it. All right? I can't come anywhere close to relating to, to what happened. And yet... While many can't relate to Paul's endurance, thousands, hundreds of thousands probably can relate to walking away from Jesus when things get difficult, right? When church wasn't what you thought it was, when resisting temptation feels harder than you thought it was going to be, 
Um, when you hate feeling like you're not in the undercurrent of dominant culture. Is that great on anyone else? You just want to be with everyone else and think like everyone else and agree with everyone else when you feel like, oh, not, not there, you know? Or when the preacher says something you disagree with, you know, you just, you just get tired and you walk away sometimes from the faith, don't you? Don't we? I mean, it doesn't have to be persecution. It can just be exhaustion. I think right now, so many of us just feel exhausted. Can anyone relate to that? Can anyone relate to just being bombarded from so many different sides and just feeling a sense of fatigue around the fringes of your life, right? I'm trying to uh, talk with my daughter right now about, she's seven. I'm trying, to talk, I'm trying to think about ways that I can talk with her about responding to disappointment. Um, I'm trying to think of ways to encourage her to keep on trying uh, when she gets frustrated or when she thinks things are hard. Because at the moment, she has a very low threshold. Uh, and if I'm honest, I have a very low threshold right now um, of pushing through when things get difficult. You know? That's just that's where I'm at. I have the mic. Um, and I was reminded um, of a picture that Oswald Chambers gave about our perception of suffering. Let me read it to you. Huge waves that would frighten an ordinary swimmer produce a tremendous thrill for the surfer who has ridden them. Let's apply that to our circumstances. The things we try to avoid and fight against, tribulation, suffering, persecution, can be the very things that produce in us abundant joy. We are more than conquerors through him in all these things, not in spite of them, but in the midst of them. A saint doesn't know the joy of the Lord in spite of tribulation, but often because of tribulation. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. Paul wrote that later. 2 Corinthians 7, 4. Oswald Chambers compares suffering and tribulations to be like the tides and waves of the ocean. They are here to stay. They may ebb and flow, but we know it's here. And just like the waves of the ocean, they can straight up pummel you. <laughs> Anyone ever wade out into the ocean a little too ambitious? And the waves just crack you down and then keep coming? You can't tell up from down, sands in your eyes, you're despairing if you're going to be able to catch the next breath, boom, another wave comes, you're scrambling to find your way up, boom, another wave comes. Some of us are right there in life right now. The waves are just pummeling you after tribulation, suffering, adversity, opposition, sickness, and sometimes we begin to despair if we're ever going to make it out. And in the moment when your weakness is rising to the forefront of your mind and you think, I'm never going to make it out, God wants to strengthen your bones today, I think. I think the Lord wants to, look, all I'm trying to do today is what Paul was doing, strengthen your soul. I think we should just reflect on and sit with the great theologian that said, hangeth thou in there, O baby. <laughs> Some of us, are enduring things that we never thought we'd have to endure. 
And for some of us, the frequency and intensity of the difficult situations are overwhelming. I mean, can't the tide of life just sweep your feet right out from underneath you and you despair if you might ever see or breathe again and you start freaking out thinking, if these don't stop, I'm a goner, right? And some of us are there and I want you to feel strength in your bones today. I want to encourage you. Because the strength of God himself is offered to us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and it changes the way that we look at adversity. It certainly did for Paul. What Oswald says is that the same wave that can cause fear and terror to a swimmer, that same wave can be the momentum and force that's harnessed to drive a surfer to a speed that he could never go by himself. What would it look like for you to not only confront your adversity right now, but head into it with a boldness knowing that God is with you, that he has gained the victory, right? And that he can and will give you joy in the midst of the difficulty that you're going through. As a Christian, we are not promised salvation from suffering. We are promised that he is with us in the suffering. That is what we cling to. Not that we'll get an easy, pain-free life, but that in the pain, in the pain, he's with us because he too has suffered. Yeah. Some of us need to remember today that our confidence isn't in ourselves and not in the strength of men or of horses, but in the Lord, right? And then keep on keeping on putting one step in front of the other. Because John 16, three says, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus said. And that's the kind of joy and confidence he's offering to us today, right? I wanna invite some of you, challenge some of you who feel that you are unable to, to get up, wipe the dust off, Wipe the blood off and be faithful to the Lord as he has been faithful to you. And how did Paul do it? Well, he served others. He loved others. He made it his aim to build up other people and the joy of God flood it, flooded into his life in a way that it hadn't before, right? I think today the Lord wants to speak to some of your hearts and say, hang in there, man. Whether you believe that he is with you or not, he is, right? And the beautiful thing about the gospel is this. God meets us where we're at, Right? He doesn't meet you or help you help some future version of yourself that you project, right? Well, as soon as I get my junk together, then God will help me. No, he meets us where we're at with the hangups we have now, right? And he wants to make you into the kind of person who can walk through suffering and adversity with the strength of God in your bones, right? Who doesn't give up. So I used to run for exercise. And when I was running a lot, like I'd run like every day and I could like put, put five miles down and be like, yeah, all right, you know? So since the pandemic and then we had a baby, I've just stopped, just straight up stopped, right? And the other day I was like, okay, here we go. Let's do this. I'm going to get back into it. And I could barely crank two out, right? I'm just heaving and huffing and thinking, man, what happened? Right? And you're like, some of you are like, dude, I couldn't even run in my car right now. And I'd be, and I'd be like huffing and puffing. And then you got this crazy wacko ultra marathon guy who runs like two marathons a week to train for his 80 mile run through the mountains, right? So like we're all in different places of our ability to endure. We are all at different places in our ability to put one foot in front of the other. And look at me, breathe, it's okay. 
It's okay. The God of grace meets us where we're at. No matter if we can get here to the car without, right? Like God's right there beside you. You got, come on, man. Come on, right? He meets us where we're at and he's pushing us to take the next step. And when the waves are crashing over your head and you despair for the next breath and it can feel impossible, I think God would say to us and wants to today, strengthen your soul, continue, encourage you to continue in the faith and telling you that it is through actually much tribulation. Welcome to Christianity. Much, too much tribulation that you entered the kingdom of God, right? But let me end with this. We've kind of gotten ahead of ourselves a little bit, haven't we, in this whole thing, right? I, I'm said, basically, keep on keeping on, you know? Take the next step. Don't give up. But I haven't addressed the most important thing. Why? <laughs> why, Paul? <laughs> right? The question you probably might be asking right now is, why, bro? Why keep on keeping on? Why love people who don't love me back? Why press in when it's hard? Why continue down the path that the path itself is what's causing the issues in my life, right? This is the case for Paul. It was the path he was on that was causing all this stuff, right? Why love people who aren't loving me back, right? When it's creating difficult for me. Why, Paul? Like we should be looking at him being like, dude, why take the risk, man? Leave town, bro. Every time you go in, it's like stirring up a hornet's nest. Like, settle down, man. Get a little wife. Get a little, how little? You know, I told you this last week. Get a little wife. Last week, last week, Gary told us what little really means. Uh, get a little wife. Get a little house, right? Get some friends. Start a family. Like, why risk life and limb? Why endure travels? Why endure uh, persecution and adversity, right? Just chill out. Well, this seems to be the case with Paul. He seems to be so captivated by the power and the beauty and the mystery and the glory of Jesus that every other problem seems dinky now. Amen. The reason Paul gets up and walks back in is not because he's a glutton for punishment, right? He's not walking back in because, well, I, I deserve it. You know, I stoned Stephen. They should stone me again. No, he's walking back in because the glory of Jesus made all other problems seem secondary. I'm not talking about like they got my order wrong at Chipotle problems, although it does that too. I'm not talking about problems like the wrong guy got elected problems, although the glory of Jesus surpasses that too. Thank you. I'm talking about people chasing me down, trying to kill me problems. Like we ain't got problems like that. And yet the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the love of Jesus in some way so outweighed any suffering that he could or would endure in this life, he said, I'm in, going back. Like this dude saw something that I don't think many of us see in Jesus, a victorious conqueror, right? A sin-defeating king, a sovereign Lord, sovereign even over my suffering, right? And turned around and walked back in, right? The power of God, the love of God, the truth of God had so permeated these men that all suffering, what he would later write, would become light and momentary, right? In comparison, in other words, suffering, suffering, the whole range of things that that word encompasses. So that's, suffering is a spectrum, y'all, from inconvenience, you suffer me, right? Suffer me five more minutes, right? It's inconvenient. Frustration, disappointment, turmoil, conflict to physical pain, to sickness, all that is a form of suffering. Opposition, affliction, 
unmerited cruelty from others. Everyone suffers in some way, guys. And something about knowing and loving Jesus made all of that seem light and momentary. You can say it this way. All suffering, even in the most aggressive and serious forms, became secondary insignificance to the glory and the satisfaction and the delight of knowing and making known the great mercy of God in Christ for these men. Therefore, this is what I'm going to end with today. The question is not, do I have what it takes to endure? Cue the Rocky music in the training sequence. No, that's not the question. It's not the question. The question is not, have I trained for this? The question is, do I think the love and the power of God is so overwhelmingly beautiful that I will submit to his will even when submitting to that means I will meet adversity and suffering in the process? That's the question. Do I think the power and the love of God is so overwhelmingly beautiful that I will submit to his will for my life even when adversity is part of that process, right? Oswald Chambers says, no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. The question is not, do I have what it takes to endure? The question is, do I trust him enough to follow him even when it goes against my own instinct for self-preservation? Does anyone else feel the deep visceral conflict of our faith between self-exaltation, self-preservation, self-worship on this side and the exaltation and worship of God on the other? It's why Jesus said crazy stuff like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's why Jesus said crazy things like, if anyone saves his life, he'll lose it. And if he loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. Clearly, Jesus was fishing for followers, saying lovely things like that, wasn't he? No, he is being upfront with you though, isn't he? Jesus is not like the world who promises and advertises for one thing and then delivers another. He is honest with you and he's upfront. Do you wanna follow me? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay. I said, Jesus routinely let people walk away from him because they would not and did not want to endure suffering. All right? And Paul could have walked away justifiably. If we were Paul's friends, we'd have been like, bro, get out, man. Like, get out of town. This isn't, that's not working for you, right? And, and yet he goes, he goes back because the joy of knowing the beauty, glory, and majesty of Jesus. So the moral of the story today is not God makes you a superhero if you believe. This isn't put a little Jesus in your fuel tank and you'll be able to run faster and work harder and get that raise. It's take up your cross and follow the king. That's the moral. It's lay down your desires, your agenda, your mission, and surrender to his. The question is not, do I have the endurance to keep on keeping on? The question is, are you out there on the current of your own desires asking God to bless you, or have you surrendered to his purposes and missions in the earth? The strength of God didn't rest on Paul because he was doing his own thing. God's power was with him because he was in submission to God's will. God was bearing witness to Paul's, not Paul's great efforts, but because Paul was preaching the word of his grace. For some of us, the reason God seems so far away from us is because despite whatever religious activity we may be involved in, in our heart of hearts, we're saying no to his ways. So what do we walk away with? We're supposed to endure, endure suffering. Real chipper, thanks a lot, Chris. (laughs) Glad I came to church. No, 
what we walk away with is the invitation to behold and savor and surrender to the love and glory and forgiveness of God in our own lives to the degree that all other undesirable things we may have to endure becomes secondary in significance. We walk away with the idea of this. Jesus himself has suffered too. God has suffered and he can walk with us in our suffering so that we can share in his suffering and be made new by his sacrifice. God has suffered too. And in his great suffering, he gives us the will to endure. By his very spirit in us, we can become people who learn what it means to suffer well. Let's stand and pray.